we pray that you will be here in a special way this morning. Speak to our hearts. Help us to have a longing to see Jesus as never before. May this be the end result of our worship service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. it is to preach this morning, especially so since my wife and I are this Sabbath officially members of TAF. I've entitled my message this morning, Ready or Not, Here I Come. And if you have any detective skills at all, you will easily guess that the subject of my message is the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, tis this alone that is the blessed hope. Annie Smith, an early Adventist pioneer, wrote that hymn, tis this alone the blessed hope. And Adventists have held the blessed hope very dearly for a long, long, long time. But my message this morning is not going to be a typical Adventist approach to the subject. You will hear a philosophy this morning that is contrary to the long-held Adventist view that we can hasten the time of his coming by being good and hinder the time of his coming by being bad. You will not hear that this morning. What I want when we've concluded our study is for us to come away with the conviction that his coming, the coming of Jesus, is quote-unquote nearer than when we first believed. The belief that we can hasten or prevent the time of his coming has, I believe, diminished our concept of just how close the second coming of Christ may actually really be. Our first scripture for the morning is Matthew 24. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 29. Immediately after that tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory." And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. 
But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. There's a beautiful hymn in the Adventist hymnal. The theme of that hymn is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was written by one of the pioneers of Adventism, a man named F.E. Belden. The hymn says, the coming king is at the door who once the cross for sinners bore, but now the righteous ones alone, he comes to gather home. At the door, at the door, at the door, yes, even at the door, he is coming. He is coming. He is even at the door. The imminence of the second coming of Christ, that he is even at the door, has always been a dominant thrust in Adventism. And furthermore, the imminence of Christ's return has always been somewhat unique to the Adventist church. There is nothing unique in believing that Jesus will come eventually. Most of the Christian world has a vague general idea about his coming, that he will come someday, someday. But Seventh-day Adventists have, from their very inception, preached the second coming of Christ with great urgency. He is even at the door. The imminence of our Lord's return has for years been unique to Adventism, and it began for us even with the preaching of William Miller. Most of the Christian churches in Miller's day believed in the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ. Someday, he'll come someday. But in the 1840s, Miller began telling the world that Jesus would appear not someday far off into the future, but that Jesus would in fact appear in that very generation. And the prophecies upon which Miller based that urgency is, with very few exceptions, what the Adventist church has used ever since. 457 B.C. as the date for the beginning of the 2300 days of Daniel 8.14. The year-day principle for a correct understanding of Daniel 9.24-27. The identification of the Antichrist. And an understanding of the millennium of Revelation 20. Between 1832 and 1844... Miller gave some 3,200 public lectures on the urgency of Christ's second coming. And in those 13 years of preaching, more than 200,000 people came to expect the appearance of Christ on October 22, 1844. Now, Belden, the Adventist hymn writer, wrote his hymn some 42 years later in 1886. And there was still an urgency in his message. He is even at the door. And it seems that the eminence of our Lord's return has always been one of the mainsprings of the Adventist message. And there are some valid reasons that it has. 
I think, for example, that it's a natural extension of our understanding of prophecy. We have said, for example, that according to Revelation 2 and 3, we are living in the time of the seventh church. And that according to Revelation 6, 7, and 8, we are living in the time of the seventh seal. And that according to Revelation 9, 10, and 11, we're living in the time of the seventh trumpet. And we have said that each of these sevens represents the very last period of time. And furthermore, if we understand the book of Daniel correctly, we are to that time in history depicted in Daniel 2 by the feet part of iron and part of clay and by the fourth beast and the ten horns of Daniel 7. And that according to Daniel 12, verse 4, we are in the time of the end when many would run to and fro and knowledge would be increased. And we've pictured these last days in terms of a clock with the hands pointing to five minutes before midnight. And when midnight strikes, Jesus will come. Then we've looked at Matthew 24 and Luke 21, those chapters that deal with the signs of his coming. And we've said that according to our understanding of these prophecies, all of those prophecies have been fulfilled except one, only one, yet remains to be fulfilled. The only thing yet to be accomplished in those chapters is Matthew 24, verse 14, which says that before the end can come, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. We do have a slight problem with that theology in that Paul said that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven in his day, Colossians 1, verse 23. We just kind of overlooked that. And, it, and, and then on top of that is the fact that every generation, every generation has experienced the fulfillment of enough of these signs to be convinced that Jesus would come in their day and in their generation. So our understanding of the eminence of his return is a natural extension of our understanding of prophecy. And then you can add to that the quote-unquote air this statements of the modern prophet. Between 1880 and 1905, Ellen White made at least eight statements to the effect that Christ could or should have come quote-unquote long ere this. And if you study those statements, you're led to believe that it must have been God's plan to finish his work sometime between 1844 and 1853, but he was unable to do so because his people, quote-unquote, were simply not ready. And here we are, the 21st century, and Christ hasn't come yet. We're prone to ask the question, why is that so? Why hasn't Jesus returned? And furthermore, has the imminence of the Lord's return eluded the Adventists of this age? Has the urgency of the second coming been replaced by other urgencies in the church today? 
do we still believe as fervently as did William Miller and the early pioneers that Jesus will come actually in this generation? And if we answer that question honestly, we would have to admit that the answer would probably be no. We seem to have held it very dearly up until about World War II when it was common belief among us as a church that surely a war of such global proportions, the Second World War, would end in the Battle of Armageddon and Jesus would come. But it didn't, and Jesus didn't. And it seems to have had a profound effect on our concept of the nearness of Jesus' return. But there are other reasons for our apparent loss of urgency regarding the second coming. Some of them have roots even in the great disappointment of 1844. For example, so enormous and so profound was their belief that Jesus would come on October 22, 1844, that when he didn't come, their disappointment was in exact proportion to their expectancy. And we today have a difficult time understanding the depth of that disappointment. Why? Because we simply do not believe as fervently as they did that Jesus was going to come tomorrow. We don't believe that as fervently as they did. And the devastation, the disappointment devastated them. Some even gave up their faith altogether. Others tried to explain the disappointment theologically. And so they shortly understood that they were, quote unquote, in the tarrying time, Matthew 25, verse 5. And that God had called them to prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues, Revelation 10, verse 11. And that during this tarrying time, the messages of the three angels would be preached in all the world, and then Jesus would come. The problem with that is, that even if we believe that today, more people are being born and more people are dying than the church is reaching. And all of this has had the effect of pushing back, pushing back, pushing back the nearness of his return, causing us to have a diminished concept of just how close the second coming of Christ may actually be. And we haven't helped the cause any in recent years with our logic. For example, we've looked at the air this statements of the prophet and said that Jesus didn't come because he's waiting for his people to get ready. And the inference is that he either can't come or he won't come until they are ready, until the church is ready, until some people think the church is purified. But that logic has worked against us. You see, if we're not ready, why are we not ready? And the answer is that most likely it's because we really don't want him to come. I mean, if he were to come now, it would certainly interrupt all of my plans, bring to an end my present lifestyle, which is really nice. 
So since he can't come until his people are ready, we postpone his coming by postponing whatever it is that prepares us for his coming. See, his return and his intervention in our lives is not in our plans. And if his coming depends upon our readiness, and if we really, really, really wanted him to come, then we would be ready. And furthermore, if he didn't come 180 years ago because the church was unprepared, why should we think that he should come now? Is the church 180 years later any more prepared than it was in the 1840s? And will it be any more prepared 180 years from now? And you begin to wonder then if Jesus can or will come at all if what he's waiting for is for his people to be ready. By the way, just what exactly does ready mean? What would the church look like if it were, quote-unquote, prepared? Could you look at the church and say, well, now the church is ready, now Jesus can come. Then I think also that we have a diminished concept of the nearness of his coming because of our misunderstanding of prophecy, particularly in the area of eschatology. And eschatology simply means last day events and by that I mean more precisely the Adventist bent for making charts of the events that happened just prior to his return it's my belief for example that we box him in by suggesting that according to our charts he can't come until the progression of events has happened all in the proper sequence you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Jesus can't come until this happens. That won't happen until this event happens. And that won't happen until this event takes place. And they all have to happen in the exact order that I have them listed on my chart. And it all begins with the National Sunday Law. Since we do not yet have a national Sunday law, then we apparently still have time and we go around believing, quote unquote, my Lord delayeth his coming. And we push the second coming farther back, farther back. Now it's my conviction that you cannot read the Bible or the modern prophet and come up with an exact precise order of the events. Personally, I think there's wisdom in that. If we could, then we would just wait until the last event on the chart, last event on the chart, and say, well, everything's happened now. The only thing left on my chart is his actual return, so I'd better start getting ready. But by then, it would be already too late. The whole essence of Matthew 24 is that because we don't know exactly when Jesus will come, because we don't know the day or the hour of his return, we had better be ready all the time. And I wouldn't be surprised that one of the reasons his coming is as a thief in the night is because we're really not looking for Jesus nearly as much as we're scanning the papers and magazines looking for events. 
and we fail to realize that according to Romans 9, verse 28, he's going to cut his work short in righteousness. So we say, yes, the church seems to have lost the urgency of the second coming. The eminence of Christ's return is not found in Adventism as it used to be found. Certainly not to the degree to which it was found in the preaching of William Miller and the early pioneers of Adventism. Probably not even to the degree to which it was found in the church prior to World War II. And let's face it, we might not even believe it as earnestly as did our grandparents, maybe not even as much as our parents. But that doesn't solve the dilemma that we've created for ourselves. In fact, the question comes with even greater force. So when is the end? For how long can the end of time be very near? What does very soon mean? Hasn't there been a delay? And what is it that has caused, caused the delay? And I answer first, that you need to be careful when you use the word delay in reference to the second advent because it has several negative connotations. For example, it gives the impression that God doesn't know what he's doing or at the very least that he's not in control. The delay has happened because he's somehow miscalculated and therefore needs to make some unforeseen adjustments to his plan. This is an idea that I categorically reject. The fact of the matter is that contrary to those who insist on setting a time for the advent, God has never stated the time of Christ's coming. So how can we logically then speak of a delay? If we use the word delay in reference to Christ's coming, we need to make it very clear that God has not failed to keep his appointed time. It is we who see the delay and not God himself. Secondly, I would say that to rightly understand the second coming, we need to go back into the Old Testament and do an in-depth study of what the Bible calls the gathering of God's people out of bondage. This Old Testament gathering is the type for the second coming found in the New Testament, the gathering of God's people. And when we do that, we discover two very important things about the gathering of God's people. Number one, you discover that the gathering was based upon a covenant that God made with his people. And the covenant was a covenant of grace. In other words, you were not gathered back then because of your goodness. In fact, God told Israel that he had not chosen them because they were the greatest of nations, nor because they were inherently righteous. He chose them simply because he loved them. And he redeemed them from bondage because he made a covenant to save them. He didn't save them because they deserved to be saved, because they were quote unquote ready to be saved, 
In fact, at the time he chose them, they were not very good people at all. All they needed to be redeemed was a relationship with a covenant maker. And so he appealed to them over and over again, Renew your relationship with me. If you will return unto the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and will gather thee from among all the nations. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Do you understand it? I want to redeem you. I want to gather you out from among the nations. Come out of her, my people that ye be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. All you need to do to be saved is to return to me. Restore your relationship with me and I will restore your freedom and gather you then as my people. And now can we make the spiritual application? It has to do with making the connection between the type and the antitype. And I'll make that connection by quoting Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. And then shall be the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other which is to say that God's covenant with his people will be kept and it will be realized by spiritual Israel, by the church. And we will not be gathered in the second coming because we are law keepers, but because we have a spiritual relationship with the one who made the covenant with us, the covenant maker we are not gathered because of our attitude toward the law, but because of our attitude toward God. Everything depends upon whether or not we will hear his appeal and renew our relationship with him. I'm here to tell you that the covenant is still a covenant of grace and not of law. He did not choose us because we are good people. Our inherent righteousness cannot recommend us to him for all our righteousnesses is as filthy rags. The Bible says that he gave his life for us while we were yet sinners. It is not our obedience to the law that permits God to gather us. It is instead the grace of God that permits us to respond to his tender appeals of mercy and to, answering, and to answer the gathering call. Come out of her, my people. Babylon has fallen. Her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Please, please, my friends, come out. And if we understand this properly, then we understand that we have no control in regard to the time of the advent. When Christ comes the second time does not depend upon us. We do not delay his coming by being bad, nor hasten it by being good. The redemption of man at the second coming, because it is based upon grace, is Christ-centered and not man-centered. The urgency of the second coming is that he will come. And he will come at a time of his own choosing. 
We may not know when that will be, and neither do the angels, not even the Son, but the Father does. The Father has an appointed time, and he will send Jesus when he's ready, whether or not we are ready. And Christ's coming will be for those who have not responded to his appeals, to those who have not restored their relationship. His coming will be to them as a thief in the night, ready, ready or not, here I come. Second thing about the gathering that we discover is from Isaiah chapter 27, verse 12, and it shall come to pass, ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. Which is to say that God did not gather Israel as a national group. He gathered Israel as individuals. As people one by one heard his call, as people one by one responded and returned to the Lord, they became heirs of the covenant provinces. Whether or not they were gathered was not determined by the response of the nation. It was determined by their own spiritual relationship with a covenant-keeping God who by grace extended the call of mercy to them. Even when they were gathered out of Egypt, it was one by one. God didn't gather them out of Egypt as a whole nation at all. Every individual in, in Egypt, every individual Israelite in Egypt had to hear the call and sprinkle the blood because if they didn't, one by one, they would suffer the same penalty that the Egyptians did. Likewise, with spiritual Israel, whether or not I'm included in the final harvest is determined by my own personal relationship with Christ. So it is with all of us. It's on a one-by-one -one basis. You've heard some say, well, if we could just get the church ready, if we could just get the church to dress this way, if we could just get the church to eat this way, if we could just get the church to act this way, if we could just reform the church, if we could purify the church, then Jesus would come. I say, not so. My salvation is not altered or postponed by the status of the church. It is determined by my own personal response to Jesus Christ. And neither does my response alter or postpone the time of his coming for the church. Just because I may be unconverted does not mean that Jesus will not redeem the church. The covenant will be kept. And Jesus will come, and he'll come at his own appointed time. There's nothing that I can do about that, ready or not. Here I come. The whole Old Testament concept of Israel as God's people is based upon the idea of individual personal relationships. And so with the New Testament concept of the church, spiritual Israel is a congregation of individuals who one by one have been gathered into the ecclesia, into the church. God does not save the church as a collective body, and you will not be redeemed simply because you are listed as a member of the church. Remember a church I was pastoring? We, we went there early, and I got a list of the 
those who are members of the church. I saw a specific name and went out to visit this lady. Said to her, missing you at church. She said, oh, I don't go to church. I said, well, how long have you been in Seventh-day Adventist? 28 years. When's the last time you were in church? Well, 28 years ago on the Sabbath that I was baptized. Why do you still have your name on the rolls of the books? Church isn't being of any benefit or any value to you. Oh, yes, it is. As long as my name is on the books, Jesus will save me. You will not be redeemed simply because you are listed as a member of the church. Church membership in and of of itself will save no one. Simply being on the role of the church is not enough. And now we close. And we conclude that the second coming of Christ is the work of God, not the work of man. And that the covenant will be kept. And that Jesus will come. And that we cannot postpone it. And it may very well be closer than we ever realized because we pushed back in our own minds the nearness of his coming. And I would not be the least bit surprised to find that when he cuts his work short in righteousness, some of the events that I programmed into my chart may never happen at all because he'll come before they end. And furthermore, if Jesus is waiting for anything, he's waiting for a response from us personally and individually. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And how do we respond? To those who say Jesus won't come until we, until we reform the church. I say, that's not a proper response. You see, my friends, we need not worry about reforming the heart of the church nearly as much as we need to worry about reforming our own hearts. When Jesus comes the second time, those who are gathered are they that are Christ at his coming. Now I conclude with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his his lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with Lift up the trumpet, loud let it ring. Jesus is coming again. Cheer up, ye pilgrims, be joyful and sing. Jesus is coming again. At the door, at the door. At the door, yes, even at the door, he is coming. He is coming. He is even at the door.